You are listening to the Holmes Avenue Baptist Church Podcast. To learn more about Holmes Avenue or how you can join the mission, visit us online at holmesavenue.com. Well, good morning, guys. My name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm grateful to be with you this morning. Let me tell you, this week has been a lot of fun as we've had students going through the halls from Charleston Malingua. I've been here all week, and I've had to use every ounce of my rudimentary high school Spanish, and I am lacking. Even the first graders are more fluent than I am. <laughs> it's, it's, a little, it's a little challenging, but it's been a lot of fun hearing the pitter-patter of little feet and just giggles and excitement and getting to pop in the classrooms. Uh, this is life and excitement, and I'm grateful that we get to be a part of this and get an opportunity just to see this. If you haven't seen it when students are in session, I encourage you, let Brian or I know. We'd love to schedule time with you to come do a tour while the students are here, get to see the classrooms while there are people in them. It's a lot of fun. You're going to want to see it. Now, I'm not here speaking about Charleston Malingual. I'm looking at the Word of God at the Scriptures today. We're continuing our series in Summer in the Psalms. We're going to be looking at Psalm 86 today. We're looking at Psalm 86, and I've titled this message, The Merciful God of Prayer. You see, as we consider our lives, we really are asking and wanting mercy to be present in our lives. I can remember back to my high school days, you know, I was a decent student, you know, I took a little English, took a little math, took a few hubcaps with that, and, you know, really tried to spread a little bit of chaos in the small town that I'm from. You know, conveniently, I was able to dodge a lot of trouble from that, except for one day when I and my friends were caught doing some goofy stuff by the principal. I mean, the principal's the guy in charge of the whole high school, right? He is the final arbiter of your fate, and we're sitting before him, having been goofing off, and he is telling us that because of our actions, we are going to be sentenced to out-of-school suspension. And of course, the three of us, my friends and I, think, oh no. The last thing that we need is that phone call to our parents of, hey, these three knuckleheads have to spend a few days at home with you. We thought we are going to get killed. We are going to be murdered. Our life is over and it hasn't even started. And as we're sitting there just dreading the reality of that phone call's coming, I can remember speaking up and going, hey, you know, is there another option? And our principal looks at me like I'd grown some horns and a you know, third eye or something. What do you mean, is there another option? I said, well, is there any way that, you know, we could maybe not call our parents, right? Like, could we, you know, do some in-school suspension? Could we do some after-school detention? Could we pick up some trash, right? Because I know if you call my dad, you will have one less student on your campus tomorrow. And not because I'm out of school being suspended, it's because he's going to murder me. So would you perhaps have any mercy for me? Maybe these knuckleheads too, but at least for me, I'm asking. And he hems and hauls for a few minutes and decides very graciously, you know, this is the first time you three idiots have been in front of me this year. Fine. After school detention, you'll be cleaning up the school with a janitor. It's fine. Felt like we had dodged a bullet right there. You see, in that moment, what I wanted more than anything on this earth was mercy. I didn't care what form that mercy came in. I just needed it to come in the form that would keep me from having to stand before my parents and go, by the way, I'm going to be home for a couple of days. You've probably experienced that same desire for mercy. 
Maybe it's not in something like a possible out-of-school suspension, but you've been in an experience in a place and a time in your life where you have desperately wanted mercy to come. In any form, you could get it. You just wanted mercy and relief. You see, I believe that we've all been in that position where we desire mercy to come. We want rescue. We want relief. We want someone to come in and say, you know, what would be fair is if I did this, but instead, I'm going to wipe the slate clean. I'm not going to punish you. I'm going to give you freedom and relief. We all desire that, particularly in our world that seems to be so bent on justice. Everything's about whether you're right or wrong. If you're right, you're with me. If you're wrong, you're against me. We just have such a divided world. And what we just want is a little bit of mercy that acknowledges we're not perfect. We're going to make mistakes. And we need a little grace sometimes. What do we find? Mercy like that. Mercy that will say what is right and wrong, yet offers forgiveness and hope. Where can we find a mercy, a grace like that in our world? Where are my dear dear friends, my brothers and sisters? Mercy like that is not found here on this earth, but from something that has come to this earth. So that mercy and grace that we are looking for is going to come from God himself and God alone. There's no mercy on this earth that will equal that that we are looking for and that we can receive from God himself. You see, as we look at this passage of Scripture today, David believed that the only place he was going to find mercy and hope, mercy and relief was from God himself. He believed the only answer to the challenges that awaited him was calling upon this merciful God of prayer, asking for relief from his current moment of crisis and difficulty. So maybe you're like me. Maybe you're looking for a little mercy and grace in your life. I believe we find it here in the pages of the Scripture today. If you would, can I pray for us? And we'll jump into the text to see what David has to say about this mercy. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for you. We're thankful that there is a God who offers mercy and grace to his people. We're thankful that though you are a just God, you are also a merciful God. So today, Lord, show your mercy and grace to us. Reveal the truth of the Scriptures to us so that we might have a right understanding of your word and your will. Reveal the truth of the Scriptures to us so that we might understand your mercy in a real and true way. Lord, would the Spirit come now? Would He work in our hearts and minds, transforming us by the renewing of our minds and our souls, by the power of the gospel, so that we might rightly understand your word. Father, we love you, and we're grateful for you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. If you're taking notes, as we try to seek mercy in our life, the first thing we want to do, and I need you to write this down, is we are going to first pray with humility. We're going to pray with humility. Look with me, verses 1 through 7. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I do cry all the day. 
Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. As we enter into our passage, we find David in need once again. It seems like every time we read a psalm of David, he is coming to the Lord in need of grace and mercy. And he's coming to God. He's throwing himself upon his mercy because he's in desperate need. He's going to tell us a little bit about what that need is later on. But essentially, his enemies have risen up once again. They are coming after him yet again. His life is in danger and he needs help. He needs mercy. He needs grace. This is a really interesting chapter in the Psalms that we read because in it, David makes 15 different requests to God in this prayer that he's writing. 15 different requests. Eight of them appear we've just read in the first seven verses. He is desperate. I mean, he's laying everything out. God, here's everything I need from you right now, Lord. Would you please move and work in my life? I think this is interesting because David's coming to God not from a position of authority, but rather from a position of humility. Just look at some of the language here. David's proclaiming that he's poor and needy before God. He's proclaiming that he is needing, he's desperate for God to be gracious to him. He's begging him, would you just listen to my plea, O God? You see, he's offering this humble plea to the God that he believes hears his people. Now, David writes these words. He's praying these words. And he believes that God really does hear and answer the prayers of his people. He really does believe that God is listening and is going to incline his ear towards him and hear what he has to say. If you are familiar with David's life as you study through the Scriptures, it's a life that is marked by God's mercy and grace. Yes, David's a man after God's own heart. Yes, he's a man who has done incredible things, but he's a man who's had colossal blow-ups and mess-ups time after time again. And he's just looking for grace constantly, mercy from God. You know, we read through the Psalms and we actually read that about 75 of these psalms are written by David. These prayers from the king of Israel, from one of God's chosen people, he writes in this 75 times. And so frequently in these psalms, what is David doing? He's saying, Lord, I need mercy yet again. Lord, I'm coming to you. I need help. He writes over 75 times to the God of the universe in confidence that he's going to hear him, that he's going to listen to him, and that he's going to move upon David's prayer request. I think it's interesting as we look at this idea of prayer from David's life. We scoot over to the New Testament and we get into Matthew 6 and you know, Jesus is commanding us to pray. He says, when you pray in the Lord's Prayer, He's teaching us to pray. But I think it's really interesting that Jesus, when He's come into the, the people of God's lives in that time 2,000 years ago, 
that Jesus has to command them to pray. He has to tell them to pray. I think it's interesting simply because, you know, for us as people, no one has to tell us to eat when we're hungry, right? When my kids say, I'm hungry, I say, hi, hungry, I'm dad. What would you like to eat? That's our answer. When we're sick and we're not feeling well, no one has to tell us, oh, you've got to go to the doctor, you're running a fever. We go, I'm running a fever, I need to go to the doctor. Yet, we have to be told by God himself, this God who stands ready to supply our every need and draw near to us when, he, when we call upon him, we have to be told by this God, hey, by the way, you should pray to me. By the way, I'm here for you. By the way, when you pray, you should pray like this. I think it's interesting that we hesitate to call upon this God in our modern world. Yet David had no hesitation at all. David was ready and willing to call upon God. You see, I think that we realize something about our nature of our lives in the modern world is that we simply are just not humble people. At, at our core, we're not humble people. We think that we can tackle all our problems with a little duct tape and spunk. We can make it through. We can make things right. We can grit our teeth and just white knuckle it through the difficulties and challenges because after all, we've done incredible things. Yet if there is anyone we study in the Bible, who could perhaps feel that way, it would be David. I mean, after all, David was a warrior king who was the greatest warrior of his age, according to the scriptures. He was the king of God's nation, the God that all of the countries in the Middle East knew, ooh, you don't mess with that God. That God's one you got to fear. He was chosen by God himself to be the king of his people to protect his name, to bring glory to his name. If there is anyone who could have had confidence in his ability to handle problems, I think it would be David. He's kind of proven that he's a capable man, yet David is so quick to pray because he is confident not in himself, not in his own skills and abilities. He is confident in God. You see, he is quick to pray because he does not believe that he is strong enough, that he's smart enough, or he's wise enough to ignore the God of the universe when he needs mercy. I just want you to think about that for a moment. The king of Israel, who's won hundreds of battles, who's conquered many lands, who is a champion of the God of the universe. If there's anyone who would have a position to maybe not be humble, it'd be him. Yet when he gets in trouble, in all 75 of these psalms, what do we see? He drops to his knees and goes, God, I'm here again. I'm here again. I need your mercy and grace. He appeals to this God of the universe, his God. On this basis of their relationship, he says, God, you're a redeemer, and I'm the one who's been redeemed. And so, Lord, I ask you, preserve my life. Show me mercy. Work in my life so that the world can see your grace and your glory once again.
You see, David has a wisdom that we so often overlook when it comes time for us to pray. When you pray, do you pray with a desperate need for the God of the universe? Do you pray with a desperate need that there is no one else who can help you, who can rescue you, who can offer mercy in this moment, but the God of the universe? Do you display the confidence that David has in verse 5? For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Do you believe that it's true about our God? Because I recognize this reality that we live our lives in such a way that we think we can tackle the problems of life. Yet, David, the greatest warrior of his age, the greatest king of Israel, couldn't handle anything without going to the Lord in prayer. There's a wisdom that David has, a humility he has, that lets him recognize that God is greater than himself and he needs mercy and humility to be displayed to him. And so I ask you, when you're looking for mercy... When you're looking for rescue and grace, are you praying with humility that God is the only one who can make these things happen? I would say sometimes we struggle with that. That leads us to our second point, that we need to pray like Jesus is the hero. We need to pray like Jesus is the hero. Continuing on in verse 8. David writes, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I might walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. In this section, David is showing us the very character and nature of God, and ultimately he's appealing to God who is the God of the universe. He's properly trying to petition God with his request, and he's acknowledging this reality that God has a certain position above the world. After all, he proclaims that there is not a God that can be found that is like this God. All the gods that are worshipped around Israel that time, they are nothing compared to this God, the God, the one true God. He says, God is above all nations, and one day... All nations shall come and worship him. We see that in Revelation. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. We recognize that one day every nation will proclaim that God is the one true God. Why is that? Well, David says because God is great and he does wondrous things. I think David writes these words as we look at this section of Scripture because David is convinced of this truth, that the hero of this story is not him, 
It is not anyone in Israel. The hero of the story of his life is God, is Jesus himself. He's saying the one that this story is about, the one we celebrate in this story is not me, is not my life, is not my successes. It's the one who provided all of that, and his name is Jesus. Notice here that David's not putting any weight in his achievements or his works. He's not listing out his victories or his successes. Rather, he's simply looking to God and he is saying that you are worthy of worship because you are great. You see, David understands something about his relationship with God. He believes that Jesus is the hero of his story because he knows that this story would be hopeless if it wasn't for the work of the Redeemer, Jesus. His position before God is assured because of the great work that Jesus has done for his people. Now, yes, David is writing before Jesus has stepped into the picture on this earth. He knows that there's a Messiah coming. He knows what he's going to do. He doesn't know his name, but he knows this truth, that this Messiah is coming and that he is not going to abandon him in his time of need now or in eternity. He rests in this truth this comforting truth that Jesus is going to be there and he is going to make a way both today and in the future for David to dwell with God. He has peace and assurance because Jesus is the hero of his story. I would just ask you, is Jesus the hero of your story? If we are able to be honest with one another, I hear this a lot from even Christian people, and I've been guilty of doing it myself, is that we proclaim things in our lives and our stories that make us the heroes of our story. We speak about things that won't work or won't happen without us, right? Well, nothing's going to happen because I would know about it because I'm in a certain position. Nothing's going to happen because I'm in charge of things. Nothing's going to happen because I've been here for 70 years and I will make sure that we're here for 70 more. We speak about our lives and our stories like we're the crucial element of things. Yet here's the truth. The stories we tell, they're about our positions, about our wisdom and our skills, and they're not about Jesus' work in his world. Brothers and sisters, the church, the people of God, has existed for thousands of years without us. If we just trace the history of the church back to Jerusalem, it's about 2,000 years. If we believe that God's people were founded before that, however many thousands of years ago, our brief 20, 30, 60, 70 years as a member of a local church will go by like a blink of the eye. Our lives are but a vapor compared to the history of the church, compared to eternity, You see, Jesus does not need us to be the hero of the story because he's already filled that position. Jesus doesn't need us. I want you to hear that. He does not need us to accomplish his mission and his glory, but he chooses to use us and work with us and through us to accomplish his mission and glory. This is good news for us because this assurance of Jesus' position as the hero of the story. This leads David to worship. 
David doesn't get upset. David doesn't cry. He doesn't get his toes stepped on. He says, you know what? Indeed, if you are the God of the universe, then you are truly the hero of the story. And let me get out of your way so that you can make much of your name. You see, David simply says in these verses that verse 11 in particular, you know, if Jesus is the hero, then I need to learn to live like him. I need to live like him and walk in his ways of truth. I need to be like this God of the universe so that I can better be a part of his story, not mine. He proclaims that he wants to learn to walk in this way of truth and fear the name of God. He offers thanks to God and he will glorify his name forever, pointing to his assurance of eternity. Because Jesus is the hero, David doesn't have to be. Things are good. They are secure in Jesus. He praises God for the deliverance of his soul, thanking God that he's not having to do the work of the hero. David knows and needs to be like Jesus. He needs to walk in obedience to God. He needs to walk in obedience to God every single step of every single day. He knows this truth is the surest way to display his love for the Lord in this lost and dying world is to submit to God. He knows that the clearest way to show his love and mercy and grace is to listen to the God of the universe and do what he's told. John 14, 15 says very clearly, If you love me, then you will keep my commandments. That's Jesus speaking to his people. What Jesus is saying, obedience to God, obedience to those in authority above you, this is the one way of displaying our love of God to the world. Consider how different the world will look at the church if our hearts, minds, and souls were captivated by this vision of glorifying God in all we do. That was our one concern, that we wanted to make much of the name of Jesus above all things, above all preferences, above all desires. We lived to make much of the name of Jesus. David believes that the world would look a little different if he and God's people lived their lives in obedience to God if they followed God in the steadfast love that he has shown them and proclaimed the message of hope that they've received. You see, all of this, this leads David to approach God in this prayer with confidence and assurance. You see, when we go to the Lord in prayer, not only do we recognize that we are not the hero of the story, but we're to pray with confidence in God. Look at verse 14. O God, insolent men have risen up against me again. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. That's important. Make note of that. But you, O God, are a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. 
Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. David's finally given us some explanation of why he needs help, rescue from God. His enemies have risen up again and they are seeking to take his life. Don't know what moment in his life this is. There are lots of moments where his enemies wanted to take his life. But in this moment, he says, God, I need your mercy and your grace. Not only is it troubling enough that these are enemies, he said, but these enemies, they are not followers of God and they are seeking to dishonor your name and your glory among your people. They're not just my enemy, Lord. They are your enemies because they do not worship you. However, David is confident. He is confident that God will hear him in his time of need. You see, he's confident because he appeals yet again to God's nature here in verse 15. Maybe you've noticed, but what does he say over and over about his God? That he is abounding in steadfast love. Abounding in steadfast love. He recognizes this truth that indeed God is a God of mercy. He offers mercy to his people. To find this mercy, we have to come to him not because of our works, not because of our righteousness, not because of things that we've done, but we come to him because of the work of Jesus upon the cross. Jesus himself shed his blood for us. Jesus himself died to be our Savior. The mercy of God is seen more clearly at the cross than in any other place in the Scriptures. Any other place in the Scriptures, there's beautiful references to salvation and redemption, but you look to the cross and you recognize that God was willing to give it all, even His only begotten Son, so that He might make a way for His people to be redeemed. The cross is the ultimate expression of God's mercy. The ultimate expression of God's mercy. And it is the only means by which God saves. By faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who paid the debt of our sin and shame upon the cross, who shed his blood for you and I, so that we might, if we call upon him for forgiveness, receive the righteousness of God in place of our sin and shame. This Jesus who wasn't content to dwell in the grave but rose from the grave three days later was risen from the grave by God himself who ascended into heaven on high who's, get this, even now interceding on our behalf before the God of the universe saying, hey, those people down at Holmes Avenue, they're my co-heirs. They're your children, God. These people are my brothers and sisters. As they come to you with prayer, with petitions, Father, would you hear them? This is what David is proclaiming in these last verses. This confidence that God is going to hear him, that the Messiah is interceding on his behalf, this assurance that he is going to be heard by God that God is going to incline his ear to his people. It's because of this that David asked God to give him strength, to show him his great mercy once again as a sign of his love to a lost and dying world. 
as we've come to the end of our passage, I have to ask you a question that I think is incredibly important for you and I. Are you like David or are you like his enemies? Are you like David who's appealing to the character of God who has confidence that the Lord who he follows has heard him? That he is confident that when he asks him for strength and mercy, that the God of the universe calls him his chosen child and he will answer him? Or are you like those men who are seeking to take David's life? Not only are they in rebellion against their king of the earth, they're in rebellion against the God of the universe. They don't follow Christ and they're looking to put his followers to shame. Are you like David? Or are you like his enemies? Wherever you stand, whatever your answer is there, here's the good news for you and I. The good news of the gospel is that at the foot of the cross, we're all on level ground. The good news of the gospel is that no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter how far from God you've been, there is grace and mercy to be found. There is redemption at hand. There is grace and mercy from a God who is abounding in steadfast love that he is offering willingly to you and to I. And so my prayer today is that all of us, whether you're a follower of God or an enemy of God, would look to the God of the universe, this merciful God that we pray to for grace and mercy. Here in the next few moments, you'll have an opportunity to cry out to the God of the universe for that grace and mercy. Our worship team will come forward and lead us in a final song. And before that, I'll pray for you and for I. I'll pray that God would show us mercy that he would offer us forgiveness, that he would give us of his grace so generously, that he would show us his steadfast love if we would trust in the name of Jesus and seek forgiveness for our sins before him. This is a time where you can confess your sin and call out to the God of the universe proclaiming, I need forgiveness, mercy, and grace. And so as I go to the Lord in prayer on your behalf and on mine. My prayer is that you would trust in the name of Jesus, call upon him for mercy and forgiveness, and follow him the rest of your days. If you would, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? O oh Lord, I come to you as a humble man, one who has been beaten down by the things of this world, one who has been broken by the struggles and difficulties of life. And I recognize a truth that what I need, Father, is grace and mercy from you. What I need is your love, your steadfast love, your generosity, your kindness, your mercy to your people. Lord, what I need is for you to continue to pour out your love for me. Father, as, as I come to you, as our gathered body comes to you, 
Lord, I'm not the only one who's in need of your grace and mercy. I'm not the only one who needs your love, your steadfast love. Lord, for everyone here, you know our hearts. There may be things we try to hide from others, but we can't hide these things from you, Lord. Lord, you know our sins, our our deepest, darkest desires, the things that would put us to shame among others. You know them, Lord. And so, Father, my cry to you is that you would convict us of our sin. You would show us our unrighteousness and you would trust, lead us to trust in this truth that there is only one way to find forgiveness in this life. There's only one place to find mercy and it comes from the foot of the cross. Humbling ourselves before your son, Jesus. Repenting of our sin, turning away from these things that have separated us from you and trusting in your grace and mercy that can only be received by looking to Jesus, acknowledging that he has paid a debt on our behalf, and resting in the righteousness that he would give us. So Lord, my prayer today is that we would look upon Jesus, that we would confess our sin, and that we would cry out for forgiveness from the God of the universe. We would rest in this beautiful truth. There's forgiveness to be found by calling upon the name of, the, of Jesus. Let us rest in this truth. Lord, would you allow the Spirit to continue to work in our hearts and minds? Would you let us be receptive to the truth of the gospel? And let us sing clearly of the grace and mercy that we have found at the foot of the cross. Lord, thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.